right, if you have a Bible either in print or on some sort of device, now would be a good time to go ahead and head towards 1 Samuel chapter 30. That's where we're going to dig in together uh, as a family this morning. Let me catch you up really quickly. If this is your first Sunday with us, maybe you missed last week, uh, David has been on the run in the wilderness for quite a while now. Uh, as we've seen, he spared Saul's life twice, and still David knows that Saul will never stop hunting him, never. And so David and his 600 guys, okay, so 600 men have come out and kind of supported and strengthened David in the wilderness uh, they, they end up going to enemy territory. So they go, they're fleeing Saul. They end up in Philistine territory to seek refuge from Saul. So at this point, David is literally a refugee in a foreign land. And the scriptures tell us he spends 16 months living in Philistine territory. During that time, he gains the favor and the trust of the Philistine king, uh, King Achish, and Achish actually comes to really trust David. He likes David so much, in fact, that he gives David and all his men uh, a, like a town, a city for them to, to live in in Philistine territory. He likes David so much, in fact, that he actually makes him his personal bodyguard. So things are going remarkably well for David and his men as they're in enemy territory, as it were. But things can change in an instant in life, can't they? I mean, sunny days can turn into stormy nights just like that. And that's exactly what we're going to see happen to David uh, together this morning. Now, here's, here's the crisis that David is going to find himself in today. The Philistines, where he's living, they're about to go to war with Israel, and that's, of course, where David is, is from. And King Achish wants David and his 600 men to fight with him against Israel, against his own people. So David is really in a bad situation. I mean, he is in a lose-lose situation, right? Because if he fights with the Philistines, his people in Israel will never trust him again. They would never trust him to be king. He would be, in fact, considered a traitor of the highest order. But if he goes to battle with the Philistines and he decides to pull a little sabotage and rebel and try to take the Philistines out, they could easily overpower David and his small band of 600 soldiers. And so David finds himself in the worst possible situation. Have you ever been in a crisis in your life where you felt like, man, no matter what you did, all of your options were gonna end badly? Like if I go left, it's going to end badly. If I go right, it's going to end badly. Have you ever been in a situation like that? I think most of us have, and that's exactly where David was. And the truth of the matter is, I don't have to know you. I don't have to know uh, anything really about your life to know that you are probably either walking out of a crisis in your life, you're perhaps sitting right in the middle of a crisis at this moment. In fact, maybe your, your thoughts, your mind is being consumed by that crisis even now as I'm talking to you. Or perhaps you're about to head into some sort of crisis in your life. Life in so many ways is about navigating the crises of life. And how we respond to those moments of crisis in life will really, in many ways, define our lives for better or for worse. 
And so whether you're here as a Christian, you've been following Jesus for years or decades, or maybe you're here and you don't know what you believe, you're just kind of exploring the faith or you're skeptic, whatever it is, I think God has a lot to say to us. He has a lot to teach us as we examine David's life and as he walks through this massive, massive crisis in his life. So as we've said, David is in a really tough spot, and what we're going to see is that God, in his grace, provides a plot twist, okay? So they're getting ready to go to war. King Achish, he's like, David, come on, boy. We want, I trust you. I want you to fight with me against Israel. So they're getting ready to go to war, but the Philistine commanders, the army guys, the generals, come to King Achish, and they're like, no way, man. David's from Israel. His guys are Israelites. We're not, we're not taking David and his men to, to battle. They could sabotage this whole thing. And so King Achish calls David over, and he's like, David, look, you know I trust you with my life. You've been nothing but good to me, but my military commanders, they don't trust you. And so we're not going to cause a big deal about this. David, just take, take your boys, take your 600 guys. I want you to head back to, uh, to your families. Just sit this one out, David. Now, again, this is God's grace in crisis, right? When David, when David had no escape route, God provides one at the very last second, and isn't God just like that, right? How many times in, in our own lives do things seem beyond hope? Do things seem beyond repair? And then God shows up at seemingly the last moment, and he does what only he can do. He rescues us. He restores that situation. And so David now and his man, they're on the way back to uh, Ziklag, which is a town that their uh, families were living in. So here's, here's kind of the big idea of the message this morning. I'm going to give this to you on the front end so that we can hopefully filter everything else that we talk about through the lens of this truth. Here it is. It's a simple one. It's only three words, but it's really important that we get this one. Here's the truth. God is stronger. Okay, he's stronger than whatever crisis you're in right now. He's stronger than whatever crisis you're about to walk into at work tomorrow morning or next month or next year. When your world is being ripped apart and you feel like things are hopeless, this is what I want you to remember. God is stronger. In fact, I want you to say that with me before we get rolling here, okay? So on the count of three, you guys don't leave me hanging. Three words, here it is. Let's go. One, two, three. God is is stronger. All right, 1 Samuel 30, verse one, here we go. Now when David and his man came to Ziklag on the third day, so this is about 50 miles from the battleground, okay? So that's why it's taken them three days to get back to their hometown in Ziklag. The Amalekites had made a raid against the Negeb and against Ziklag, and they had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his man came to the city, they found it burned with fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Neom of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel, so just imagine this scene with me for a moment. David and his man have been traveling for three days to get back home. They're getting close to home. They're undoubtedly looking forward to seeing their wives, to having their kids come and run and jump in their arms. They're looking forward to sleeping in their own beds instead of 
tents in a war camp, right? They come over that last ridge getting close to home and somebody's like, man, do you, do you smell that? It smells like something's burning. Somebody else is like, yeah, man, well, maybe they, maybe they have like a bonfire to celebrate our return and they get closer and closer to home and things are, things are eerily quiet. Somebody's like, man, why, why aren't the kids, why aren't the children running out to greet us like they always do? Man, something's not right. And you can kind of picture these soldiers beginning to maybe sprint towards their hometown. And they get there and their city is burnt to the ground. And they gotta be thinking, no, 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 no. And then you just picture them, they're, they're running from burnout house to burnout house. They're just checking the houses, just praying, God, please not, help me not find the body of my, my wife and my kids, just hoping by some miracle that everybody would be okay hoping that they would find their families unharmed, and there's nothing. They're all gone. All of their families had been kidnapped by a violent nomadic tribe called the Amalekites. And because the Amalekites were nomadic people, they never stayed in one place long. So it's not like David and his guys even knew where, where to go to find these guys. It's not like they had one certain city that they lived in all the time. They could just go find them there. These people could literally be anywhere on the face of the planet. Now, I want you just to put yourself in their shoes for a moment. Think about the sinking feeling of hopelessness that would just envelop you in this moment. I'm just talking just a crushing, soul-wrenching grief. The scripture says they raised their voices. It's this idea of wailing, screaming in pain. It says they wept until they did not have strength to weep anymore. Can you just picture these grown, tough, battle-tested men collapsing to their knees, weeping until they didn't have any more tears to cry? This is just, this is gut-wrenching. This is devastating. Have you ever been in a place like that in your life, man? Just so devastated that you, you just run out of tears to cry. This is like nothing more to give. David and his man are there. Now things can't get any worse for David, right? Wrong. Look at verse six with me. And David was greatly distressed for the people, his friends, spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. And so they get done screaming wailing, weeping, crying their hearts out for their wives and their sons and their daughters. And someone looks up and says, wait a minute. Wait, wait a minute. Why, what, why wasn't somebody left here to, to watch over and guard our wives and our kids? Whose decision was that? Who made that call? David. David, David took all the soldiers. David killed our families with his negligent leadership. Let's kill him. It's David's fault. Let's execute him. Now, just a quick side note here. Oftentimes, our instinct, our initial reaction when we face a crisis in life or when we walk into a painful situation in life is to do exactly what David's friends do here, and that's look for a scapegoat. We just look for somebody to blame. Somebody has to pay the price for the pain I'm in, right? And this, this even comes out in little ways in our, our lives. Man, I can't tell you how many times I'm in a rush trying to get somewhere, somewhere important, an important meeting, whatever it is. I cannot find my keys, right? And I just start barking, who moved my keys? 
I had them right here by my wallet. Somebody better tell me who moved my keys. Honey, they're in your hand. My bad, my bad. I'm, I'm sorry, right? We just, we just, we're looking for somebody to blame at every crisis point in our lives. One of my, you guys know we have three kids. One of my kids who shall rename uh, nameless for the purposes of the story. Um, every time this child gets hurt, right, so they, they fall and hit their knee on the couch or they run into a door, the first thing they do is, is in anger scream out the name of one of their siblings. Like, kid, your, your siblings are with, with grandma. They're not even in the same house. Yeah, but they left the door open. It's their fault. They moved the couch this way. That's why I hit my knee. Just looking for somebody to blame, right? We like to have someone to blame when we hurt. And so we blame people, or maybe even we blame God. But let me just encourage you, friend. When you walk into a crisis, please don't play the blame game. It's not going to go well for you or the people that you love. See, David goes from having lots of friends to having like no friends in an instant, right? Friends and his friends that he thought he had want to kill him now. You talk about a crisis in life. David has lost his family now. Now his friends, really the only thing he has left in life, want to execute him. Now what's David's reaction to this? Now, Listen, I, I believe this is a test for David. He doesn't know this yet, but he is about to be crowned king. And I think God is just looking to see, man, like how, how does David respond to the most devastating crisis in his life? And we find out exactly how David responded at the end of verse six. Listen to this. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. I love that. What's David's reaction to the biggest crisis in his life, to the most pain he's ever experienced? Does he lose it? Does he start screaming? Does he lash out at his friends like, I've done so much for you guys, you wanna kill me now? Come on, I'll take you all one at a time. What does he do? Does he blame God? None of that. In the biggest crisis point of his life, David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Loved one, the crises of life either bring out the best in us or the worst in us. And so here's the first truth that I want to highlight for you together this morning. Number one, the crises of life reveal the functional saviors in our hearts. Now, here's what I mean by that. We can say with our mouths that we trust God. We can proclaim from the rooftops that Jesus is our highest treasure in this life until we're blue in the face. But when the mass hits the fan in our lives, we run to our actual saviors every single time. If you wanna know what you really worship in this life, look at what you run to when things get really hard. That's your functional savior. The things we worship are the things we turn to when life gets tough. And a functional savior can be anything. Some people turn to the functional savior of alcohol when things get tough in their lives, man. If you've got to have a, a glass or two of wine every night just to, just to calm your nerves and just to relax you enough to get to sleep, that's become a functional savior for you. It could be food. It could be relationships. It could be sexual stuff. It could be money. It could be retail therapy. Hey, man, go spend your pain away. As Americans, we love that one. 
It could be working out. It could be physical fitness. It could Listen, functional saviors can be good things, but they're good things that we put in the place of the best thing, and that's God, and that's called idolatry. We see this play out. We don't have time to read it, but we see this play out with Saul in chapter 28 in one of the weirdest, strangest stories in the entire Bible. So in uh, 1 Samuel 28, we see Saul finally decides that he needs to hear from God. And he wants to hear from God because he's going into battle. He's scared to death that he's about to die. And he can't hear from God. God won't answer him because Saul won't repent. He won't turn from his sin and turn back to God. So Saul, in his moment of crisis, goes, listen to this, he goes to a medium, right? Like somebody who dabbles in the demonic to communicate with the dead. So in the heat of the moment, Saul's functional savior is revealed, and it's not God, See, Saul could have said, God, listen, I'm gonna wait on you. I'm I'm not moving. I'm not going to to war until I hear from you, God. God, I repent of my sin. God, please cleanse me. I don't even care if I'm the king anymore. I just need a right relationship with you. But Saul wouldn't do that. Saul relied on his own wisdom, even seeking demonic powers. Now, contrast that with David's life. Life is literally about to crush David, and he runs straight to God as his source of strength. You can just picture God in heaven looking down going, that's my guy. That's my guy. He's the runt of the litter, little sheep boy, but his heart is after my heart. That's my dude. That's my next leader. That's my next king. I want you to listen to the words of David in Psalm 56. Uh, Some scholars speculate that David may have actually written this psalm as he was facing uh, losing his family to the Amalekites and being stoned, being executed by his friends. Listen, listen to his words in Psalm 56. David says, when I am afraid, in other words, when my life is caving in around me, when I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death, when I've lost everybody that I love in my life, when my friends have betrayed me, when people have wounded me, what's my response? I put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise. In God I trust and I'm not afraid, what can mere mortals do to me? Friend, in your times of crisis and pain, where do you run? When the mess hits the fan in your life, where do you turn in life? I want you to watch what David does next. This is fascinating, verse seven. And David said to Abiathar, the priest, the son of Amalekite, bring me the ephod, so Abiathar brought the ephod to David. Now, the ephod was, was an elaborate garment. It was a priestly garment that priest would wear. And so what David was doing by calling for the ephod here was he was symbolizing his desire to hear from God, to walk in his presence, to be faithful to God. Verse 8, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? And he, God, answered him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue so David set out, and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook of Besor, where, the, where those who were left behind. But David pursued he and 400 men. Okay, so he's gone from 600 to 400. What happened? It tells us. 200 stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook of Besor. So I want you to see this. David will not move without hearing from God first. David will not seek revenge. 
David is saying to God, God, whatever you want me to do, that's what I want to do. God, my strength is in you. My hope is in you. Where else could I turn but to you, God? Now, just a quick little side note here. One of the reasons that we intentionally and consistently encourage you at New Life in the area of spiritual disciplines, right, of personal prayer time, of having a quiet time, of reading the scriptures yourself, not just depending on us to feed you every Sunday morning, of gathering together, the discipline of gathering together for corporate worship together on Sunday morning, the discipline of getting into smaller circles and doing life with other believers, like all of that stuff that we encourage you to do is because we want you to teach your heart where to find strength when the crisis comes in your life. We want your instinct to be to run to God in the crisis. Because friend, listen, the type of strength that you're gonna need when your world is ripped apart will not be, will never be found in any functional savior. That type of strength that you need, as David well knew, is only found in God. And so friend, teach your soul to find strength in Jesus in the day of crisis. Every other thing that you turn to will eventually fail you in the fire. So David goes, God, what do you want me to do? This isn't about me. I don't, it's not about me getting revenge. It's not, God, I just want to, I want to follow you. I want to be in your presence. I want you to do what you want me to do. So God, do you want me to go after these, these Amalekites or, or not? And God answers them and he says, David, I got you. Go after them. And as soon as God says that, you can hear the Rocky Balboa soundtrack start playing in the background, you know? It's on at this point. So David sets out with his 600 guys, but when they get to a river, 200 of them are so exhausted that they can't go on. Now think about it. How, like, how exhausted do you have to be? They got my wife. They got my kids. Like I've got to be almost dead. Like I, I, can't, I can't even crawl to not go on. And 200 says can't go on. These are the kind of guys maybe you would think they're a little weak-minded, probably the kind of guys that were pulling for the Rams last week in the Super Bowl, just not very strong, you know, minded. Just kidding. These guys, these guys are, they are spent. Physically, they, they literally are probably on death's door. They cannot walk another mile. They're spent. So this is bad news for David, right? He's chasing this band of Amalekites, probably numbering in the thousands. He's gone from 600 to an army of 400, He's lost a, a third of his comrades just like that. And so these 400 guys, they're out there in the wilderness. They're desperately trying to track these Amalekites. And the scriptures tell us as they're looking for them, they actually come across this young Egyptian guy. This, this Egyptian guy, he's just apparently wandering around in the wilderness. He's on the brink of death. He hasn't had anything to eat, nothing to drink in three days. And so they give this poor guy uh, some water. They, they feed him a whole bunch of food. They really revive this poor uh, Egyptian guy, bring him back to life. And let's pick up in the narrative right there, verse 13. And David said to him, the Egyptian guy, to whom do you belong and where are you from? And he said, I'm a young man of Egypt, a servant to an Amalekite. So you can picture David's ears starting to perk up now. And my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. Kind people, huh? These Amalekites. Somebody gets sick, they just throw them out in the wilderness in the desert to, to starve to death, to die. Verse 14. 
We had made a raid against the Negeb of the Cherethites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negeb of Caleb. And listen to this. And we burned Ziklag with fire. Now he has David and David's men's undivided attention. And David said to him, will you take me down to this band? Then he said, swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master and I will take you down to this band. Now, I want you to notice the kindness with which David engages this Egyptian man who had likely participated in the burning of his home and the kidnapping of his family. David easily could have gone full mafia boss here, right? He said, man, I'm gonna bust your kneecaps. I'm gonna start snapping your fingers until you take me to them. Instead, they treat this guy like a brother. They give him food. They give him water. They show him grace. This brings to mind the New Testament story of the Good Samaritan, doesn't it? Believer, let this be a lesson for us. We are to engage our world with a measure of grace that may even seem strange to them. Like, man, why are you loving me like this? Why, why do you even, you don't even know me. Why, why do you care about me like this? And we can answer them because we have a God who cares. And we are his agents. We are his sons and his daughters on this planet. And he wants you to know that he loves you too. So that's the second truth that I want to highlight this morning. Number two, we get grace to give grace. We get grace to give grace. Church, we have the best news in the world. The news that though we were rebels and sinners deserving of nothing less than death and separation from a perfect and holy God forever, that even in that state, he came to rescue us. He came to adopt us into his family by washing us in the blood of Jesus and declaring us righteous and forgiven because of what Jesus had done for us. Christian, we have experienced the highest form of grace possible. And that form of grace must, it should compel us to give that type of grace away to others. See, we get grace to give grace. So there new Egyptian friend agrees. He takes David and his 400 guys down to where the Amalekites are hiding. Verse 16, and we had taken them down. Behold, they, the Amalekites, were spread abroad over all the land. Again, probably thousands of them. They were eating and drinking and dancing because all of the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And so David and his guys look down over this valley, and it is a disturbing scene. These Amalekites are eating, they're drinking, they're dancing, they're partying, they're likely drunk, they are reveling in their sin. Now just just remember, these Amalekites, they were a pagan people, they were a violent people, they were known in those days for preying on the weak It doesn't take a whole lot of imagination to think of the way that David and his men, their families were brutalized potentially by these Amalekites. It doesn't take a lot of imagination to kind of think of maybe the ways that their wives and kids were being abused, perhaps even during this party, the things that were happening to their wives and their sons and their daughters. It's go time. Verse 17, and David struck them down 
from twilight until evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except for 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. Now remember, David is down to 400 men. They're likely taking on an Amalekite army numbering in the thousands. They are badly outnumbered. But remember, David's trust is in God. I love this quote from uh, Andrew Vanderbilt. He's this Dutch missionary who's smuggled Bibles um, into communist countries and uh, Muslim countries all over the world. I love this quote from Brother Andrew. He says, one man with God is a majority. Do you love that? One man with God is a majority. And so David, even though he's badly outnumbered, has a majority because he has God on his side. And David is just living with this type of unexplainable, ferocious boldness. Outnumbered, don't care. Odds stacked against me, don't even care. I've got God, bring it on. Like what a lesson for us, church, in our times of crisis. Now, watch what happens, verse 18. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Now, pause here, just a side note. Uh, 1 Samuel is history. So scholars kind of define this type of literature in the Bible as descriptive rather than prescriptive, okay? So you notice David had two wives. It's describing what was going on. It was not prescribing for us what we should do. So young guys, this is not permission for you to go grab another wife. Verse 19, nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all. All the flocks and the herds and the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. He's the hero again. Now, church, don't miss this. God restored everything that was lost. Not one thing was missing. All of their wives, their sons, their daughters, every last possession was accounted for. Church, our God is all about rescuing and restoring now, there's a massive truth here that I think God wants us to see, and it's this. And this is our last point, and we're about to land the plane. Number three, God is the great rescuer and restorer of his people. Now, David experienced this firsthand. And to me, this is the exciting thing, church. Though God rescued his people from the Malachites, though he restored everything that had been lost, our ultimate rescue and restoration as adopted sons and daughters is yet to come. See, because we, we know the end of the story. The book of Revelation describes at the end of time as we know it, when Jesus returns for the second time and establishes his kingdom, it tells us that in Jesus' kingdom, when he returns, every wrong will be made right. Every injustice will be crushed. Every tear will be wiped away. The prophet Isaiah tells us that in that time, in the new age, in the new kingdom, weapons of war will actually be beaten into garden tools because peace will rule. There'll be no more cancer, no more rape, no more murder, no more racism, no more little kids starving to death in Africa or Asia, Asia no more slavery. Perfect harmony, perfect peace under the reign of a perfect king forever. Our God is great, church, and he delights in rescuing and restoring his sons 
and daughters, and that day is coming, friend. Verse 21, then David came to the 200 men, the 200 guys that stayed behind. They were too weak, been too exhausted to follow David, and who had been left at the brook of Besor. And they went out to meet David, to meet the people who were with him. When David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. So the 400 guys who fought don't want to give the 200 guys who didn't fight anything except for their wives and their sons and their daughters. Really generous guys, huh? David's not having any of it. Verse 23. But David said, you shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He's reminding them, this isn't yours. You didn't do this. Our God did this. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. David, got, David goes, guys, no way. No way. I'm not letting you punk out here. I'm not letting you get greedy and stingy because, listen, I want you to know, none of this is yours. You didn't do this. God has done this. He's the one who gave us the victory. God is the one who restored our families and our possessions. This is all God's grace. Everything we have, guys, is from God. It's his grace to us. So we're gonna give grace. We're gonna be a people of grace. And as I've tried to just hammer home this whole series, David's story is not just about David. David, like so many Old Testament figures, is a foreshadowing of the better king who would come. The king who would never stumble. The king who would never fall. The king who would never fail his people. David points us to Jesus, the better king. David risked his life for his people. Jesus gave his life to rescue his people. David loved his people imperfectly. Jesus loves his people perfectly. David points us forward to Jesus. Jesus himself said in Matthew 20, he said that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. Now here's what that means for you, friend. Jesus came to rescue you. You say, Chris, man, you don't, you don't know me. You can't say that. You don't know what I've done in my past. You don't know the sins that I've committed. You don't know the, thought, the sick thought patterns that I have in my life. You don't know what I've done. I don't need to know any of that stuff. You know why? Because Jesus said he came for you. And he proved it with a bloody cross and an empty tomb. You think your sin is bigger than Jesus? Really? You think your sin is, is bigger than the sacrifice of Jesus? You think your rebellion runs deeper than the grace of God? There's not a chance, friend. God loves to rescue and to restore. Now, the last few verses of this chapter are uh, recording David giving away all the spoil from war. He's just going from town to town. He's just, he's just giving it all away. 
He's just giving grace. He's just pouring out blessing on others. He's teaching us, church, that everything we have in our lives is grace. The air that we're breathing right now, God's grace. The jobs that we have, God's grace. The money in our bank accounts, God's grace. Our families, his grace. It's all his. His, entrusted to us, not ours, his. And David, once more, is giving us this compelling picture of a better king who would one day come and pour out his grace on undeserving people, on you and I. Friend, how then can we not live as people of grace in light of these truths? How can we do that? We must do that. Our God is stronger. Friend, run to him in the crisis. Run to him in the storm. Find strength in him. Find in him the grace that you seek. As we close this morning, I want to invite you just to bow your heads with me for a second. I want us to consider just a couple of questions in light of these truths. And then we're going to sing together and we'll be done. This is what I want you to understand this morning. Friend, you you are a captive to something. You're a captive to something, and the only one who can set you free, the only one who can rescue and restore in your life is Jesus. And I want you to understand, he is stronger than your sin. Jesus is stronger than your problems. He's stronger than whatever storm you're in in your life right now. He's stronger than your anxiety or your depression or your addiction. He is stronger. And so here's the question that I want you to walk out of here with this morning. What are you trusting in as your functional savior when things get hard in your life? Just be honest with yourself. Do a self-assessment. What's your functional savior? What do you run to when things get messy in your lives? Friend, everything will fail you in the end except one. Do you know the Savior? Have you surrendered your life to Jesus? I'm not asking you if you're religious. I'm not asking you if you go to church. I'm not asking you if you know all the Bible answers. Have you ever surrendered your life completely to Jesus? Just wave the white flag like David did. Said, God, I don't know what's going on in my life. I'm tired of messing it up. I need you. I'm tired of leading my own life. Giving you my life. Have you ever done that? If you haven't, I want you to know you can do that today before you leave. I want you to know you should do that today before you leave. What could possibly keep you back from the best thing that could ever happen to you in your life? And if you're here this morning and you know Jesus, this is a question for you. What area of your life are you not trusting him in today? Where are you not trusting him? And maybe all you need this morning is to remind your heart of what your head already knows to be true, and that is he is stronger. So stop running to counterfeit gods. Stop running to functional saviors. Run to Jesus. Find your hope and your strength in him. Let me pray for us. Father, you you are so good. 
you are breathtakingly powerful and sovereign over this world and our lives. God, would you forgive us for the times that we try to make you small or weak in our minds or our hearts, God. Forgive us to, for running to those counterfeit gods, to those functional saviors, God, to ease our pain instead of running directly to you like David did. So Father, would you help us beginning today to rely on you, to trust in you fully, Father, We ask that for our good, and we ask it for your glory. We ask it, we pray it in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. Church, will you stand with me?